kids ages three and four and kindergartners, you can make your way to the back. Miss Rebecca's in the back and it'll take you up to your, to your classroom as they're making their way back there. Everyone else, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians this morning, we're going to look at the first 12 verses in chapter two this morning. First Thessalonians chapter two, uh, beginning in verse one, and we'll read through verse 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, hello, good morning. I'm one of the elders here at Buffalo City Church. My name is Caleb. I'm grateful that you're here with us. Um, and, uh, and, and we're here this morning to worship a God who has inspired these words that we're about to read. And so when we go to God's Word together, I ask that you open up your Bibles and put them on your lap and keep them open to the passage that we're looking at together, because I'm convinced that, uh, that the words that we're looking at together are, 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 are inspired by God, number one, but then two, that our time together will be far more enjoyable if you see what I'm about to to read in front of you. So if you have an app on your phone, pull that up. If you have a Bible, um, open that up and leave it open on your lap this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible and you don't have an app, um, and if you can't download one quickly, there are some Bibles on the back table back there. Those might be all gone by now. Uh, But under the offering box in the back, there's a stack, a big old stack of Bibles back there, soft cover, Bibles. Uh, that's our gift to you if you don't have a copy of God's Word. And like, and similarly, if you are sharing uh, the good news of Jesus Christ and His Word to someone in your life, pick one of those up and give it to them. Use that as an opportunity to continue to share the gospel with friends and family members, neighbors, co-workers who may not know, may not know Jesus or, may who, or who just might be in need of, of a Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, I'm going to begin reading in verse... One, and if you have one of those black hardcover Bibles and you're looking for the text, you can find it on page 1172. These words that I'm about to read are inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Thessalonica. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Parents want the best for their children. If you're a parent, you understand this statement, and this is the way that it should be. This is God's good design when we have children to want the best for our children. And as a mom or as a dad, you want your kids to take the right path. And you want your kids to take the right path, not uh, not, uh, because uh, you are strong and firm and, and come at them hard, but because you come at them with gentleness and encouragement. Of course, corrective discipline is sometimes necessary uh, for a child. Sometimes you need a firm hand. You know it would be better if your kids joyfully obeyed and willingly obeyed 
when you gave them a gentle command, and when you encouraged them to obey, but sometimes a more assertive form of discipline is necessary. The Proverbs tell us over and over again, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Sparing the rod is tantamount or uh, correlates with hating your child. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Corrective discipline wielded by parents is sometimes necessary, but it's not, according to Scripture, the parent's first choice. Mothers, your intuition kicks in when the tension amongst your children escalates and you gently remind them to be kind to one another. And when they heed that gentle reminder, that is the best outcome. Fathers, you praise your kids when they say please and thank you when you're invited to someone's house for dinner, hoping by, that, by your encouragement, they will continue to be respectful and well-mannered even into adulthood. In this passage this morning, Paul compares himself to a gentle mother and an encouraging father in the way that he approaches the Thessalonians. He comes to them in gentleness. He comes to them encouraging and exhorting and charging them like a father. Paul is grateful that the Thessalonians responded so well to his gentle approach. When he came to to Thessalonica with Silas, they came together And they proclaimed the gospel, and some of the Jews and many of the Greeks came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And through his gentle appeal to them, and through his continual encouragement to walk in a manner worthy of God, you'll see that right at the end of our passage in verse 12, they did. They came to know Jesus Christ, and through gentleness and encouragement began their spiritual life, walking in a manner worthy of God. He's grateful that they listened to his encouragement and exhortation. He is grateful that they responded so well to his gentle approach. Just as any parent would be over the moon if gently they requested something of their children and they obeyed, and their encouragement led to future good behavior. Therefore, the point of this passage is for Paul to establish or probably re-establish his credibility as an authority in the life of the Thessalonians. Paul wants to re-establish his credibility as a loving authority to the Thessalonians. Now, there's been some time in between Paul left Thessalonica, and you'll remember that he left this church uh, because uh, of the, the, the persecution that was happening because of the, the Greek city officials, the Gentile city officials who were stirred up to action because of the jealousy of the Jews. And so the, the Thessalonians received the word. If we go back to, to chapter 1, they received the word in much affliction. Immediately upon declaring Jesus is Lord over and above Caesar, when it was required of them as a Roman province to say Caesar is Lord, when they started saying Jesus is Lord, they immediately faced persecution. And in the midst of that persecution, they endured immediately. They continued forward. They moved on. They trusted, they trusted God. They trusted God in all that he had provided for them and hopefully looked forward to the return of Christ. And so when we look at this passage, Paul is reminding them again that he was a a credible, loving authority to them when he came and declared the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And he wants to reestablish that. He was forced to leave under the threat the threat made against his life. He and Silas left. And later in the letter, we'll learn that Paul sent Timothy 
to, uh, to go to the people in Thessalonica, to the church there, and to remind them of the path that they were on. And Timothy returns to Paul with a good report. The Thessalonians are doing well. They're, they remember you fondly. Paul wants to reestablish by writing this letter, by beginning chapter 2 the way that he does, he wants to reestablish his credibility as a loving authority. Now, there are places in the New Testament where Paul does credibly does have to establish his credibility in this way because the church to whom he is writing refuses to acknowledge his God-given authority. If you read the letter written to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you'll see that a lot of that letter is devoted to Paul developing and giving reasons why God has called him as an apostle and given him authority to preach the good news. Over and above what he would call these super apostles. There were these men who showed up in Corinth. Uh, they looked really good. They spoke really well. They were good uh, at they were good orators. Their public speaking skills were really good, and they were very polished. They looked good. Usually they were, um, they were tall, dark, handsome guys who shaved their heads and greased them up to look like cue balls, and they were really great um, at most things that you could observe from them. And Paul was not that way. Paul said, I came to you in such a way I was frail and looked weak, and my, the, the thrust of my letters and the the, uh, the way in which uh, I write to you didn't match the way that my physical appearance came. And so you thought maybe I didn't have the cred- credibility as an authority figure that God had given the gospel and trusted the gospel to, to preach it to you. In that instance, Paul has to reestablish his authority as a credible gospel minister to them because they have strayed. But that is not the case for the Thessalonians. They remember Paul and Silas well. They remember them kindly. If you look down the page at chapter 3, verse 6, this is when Timothy returns to Paul to give a report. And he says, we'll get to this in a few weeks, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. The, the Thessalonians remember Paul kindly. And you remember even in our first week studying this letter together, this was not a foregone conclusion. It's not a foregone conclusion because... Um, they had to leave quickly because of the threats made against their lives. And it would have been not unreasonable for the Thessalonian church to say, Paul and Silas showed up, they preached the gospel, and then they ditched us to suffer under the, under the persecution of the city officials and under the persecution of the Jews. But that's not what the Thessalonians do. They remember Paul and Silas kindly, and Timothy brings this report to them. So if Paul doesn't, like in the case of the Corinthians, have to reestablish his credibility because they've lost it, why does he want to do that here? Why does he begin this section of his letter by desiring to reestablish his credibility as a loving authority? The Thessalonians are doing well. They love and respect Paul. The answer is that Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that he loves them. That he loves them like a mother or like a father who loves her or his child. And he wants to remind them that he loves them by reminding them how he came to them. Gentleness like a mother, encouragement like a father. In both of these postures towards the Thessalonians, Paul does not uh, relinquish his authority. Just like a mother has authority over a child, a father has authority over his child, gentleness and encouragement do not imply lack of authority. And I'm using that word, and in our day and age, oftentimes the word authority uh, gets turned into a, a dirty word. Claims to authority by anyone are seen exclusively as power trips. 
or exercises of authority in our world are seen as power grabs. This is not the way that the Bible sets out a definition of authority. But Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of the love that he has for them and the authority that God has given to them, both in the same, one not working against the other, but both hand in hand, part of his role in their lives. Like a parent who knows it is better to approach a child in gentleness and encouragement, but also knows that a gentle, encouraging approach does not eliminate the parent's authority. So there are three things that I want to point out this morning in this text. Three ways that Paul came to the Thessalonians that he states very clearly. This is the way that I came to you. Those three things are that Paul came to the Thessalonians seeking to please God. Paul came to the Thessalonians in gentleness like a mother. And Paul came to the Thessalonians in encouragement and exhortation like a father. Those three things are going to guide our time together. We're going to walk through this text considering each of those things. And those are pretty much in order here as we look, look together at these 12 verses. So the first thing this morning, Paul came to the Thessalonians seeking to please God. Now there's an immediate contrast here. We see it in verse 4. So if you look at verse 4 with me, about halfway through, he says that they speak, he and Silas and Timothy is included in this, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He sets up the contrast, not to please man, but to please God. And Paul says that the way that he and Silas and Timothy spoke to the Thessalonians was aimed at pleasing God. How do we know this to be true? Okay, so this passage builds to this idea. Three of these uh, supporting points here uh, build, or I'll come before and one comes after. So they build to this idea that Paul and Silas and Timothy came to the Thessalonians desiring to please God and not to please man. So again, look at the text. Look right away in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Not reason number one. They came... To the Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy came to the Thessalonians effectively. When these three men declared the word of God to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians received the gospel and were transformed by it through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them. Paul makes that clear in chapter 1. If you need a refresher, go this afternoon and read through the 10 verses in chapter 1. Paul makes it clear that the word came to them, the word of God, the gospel came to them, but not in word only, not just verbally, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The, the, those who brought the gospel to them, Paul and Silas, spoke to them in full conviction, fully expecting that the word of God would have its full effect in the lives of the hearers. And it did. In the power of the Holy Spirit, it gripped their hearts, transformed their lives, gave them new life, and they began following Jesus, even in the midst of great persecution. This is evidence that Paul came to the Thessalonians aiming to please God and not aiming to please man. Because the word that seeks to please men and not God those words are incapable of affecting change in the lives of the hearers. If Paul came with a watered-down gospel for fear of the Jewish leadership growing jealous or the city officials extorting money, both of which happened in this case, he would have been seeking to please man and not God. But the Thessalonians were targeted and persecuted by the Jewish leadership, and their money was extorted 
from them by the city officials. And the Thessalonian Christians did receive the word joyfully. They received the word joyfully as their money was unfairly taken from them, as the Jewish leadership came after them in jealousy, persecuting them, bringing them, dragging them out of their homes. The Thessalonian Christians received the word joyfully in midst of this affliction. Man's action did not deter Paul and Silas from proclaiming the gospel, and the gospel was effective in the Thessalonians. The second way we know that Paul and Silas and Timothy were aimed at pleasing God and not pleasing man is found in verse 2. Paul and Silas had already suffered and were shamefully treated in Philippi. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So they had already experienced this, but that did not deter them from bringing the full gospel, a gospel that does offend. It offended the sensibilities of the Jewish leadership in Thessalonica. It offended men and women in Philippi. But they weren't there to please those who the gospel offended. They didn't alter their message to get a better reception. They preached the same gospel and faced the same consequences. Man-pleasing would have altered the message. Seeking to please God would have held fast to the truth, and that is what they did. The third way we know that Paul and Silas and Timothy were aimed at pleasing God and not pleasing man can be found. Well, I said that there were three before verse 4, but there's two before and two after. So in verse 5, Paul writes, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. They did not flatter the people. The goal of flattery would be to make the people like you in order to push an agenda. But Paul didn't do this. Paul didn't push an, a man-made agenda. Remember we talked about this last week when we talked about repentance. And how repentance is turning from sin and to God. There's a directional change that exists, but flattery would sound something like, you guys are doing pretty good. You're on the right path. Maybe sprinkle a little Jesus in there and see how it goes. Maybe we could give them a try and see if that helps you get ahead in life or be a little more successful in your day-to-day. -day. When Paul doesn't flatter, he says, no, you're, you're sinful. You need a directional change. You must turn from dead idols and turn to the living God. That's not a flattering message. It implies that something that you've constructed in some direction that you're going is wrong. And that it needs to be fixed. And that you can't fix it by yourself. Apart from Christ, you're going the wrong way. But someone who is trying to flatter you won't tell you that your life is headed the wrong direction. And that's exactly what Paul does. He came not trying to please men, but please God, because he was, he was vocal about the reality that the Thessalonians needed to change their direction. The fourth way that we know that Paul and Silas and Timothy were aimed at pleasing God and not pleasing man comes in verses 5 and 6. That's the second half of verse 5. He says that I didn't come with flattery, and, but nor with a pretext for greed. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, although we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, I think that these two ideas are together. When Paul says that he didn't come with a pretext for greed, nor did we seek glory from people, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about financial compensation. 
Paul said they didn't come for the, with a pretext of greed and seeking glory. The connection is that Paul is talking about money. The authority that Paul is given by God did give him the ability to require his financial needs be covered by the Thessalonians. The authority that Paul is given by God means that he could have come and said, I require financial compensation as I bring to you the gospel. Now, that doesn't exactly sit right with us to have a minister of the gospel make a demand, but Paul did, he says, he had the authority to say, you should compensate me. And he mentions this also in 1 Corinthians. Again, a contrasting letter, but one that has a lot of the same themes. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8-11 through 11 says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So he's appealing to the law as the authority, but the one that gives him the authority to, to make these claims. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox where it treads out the grain. And then he gives an interpretation. He says, Is it not for the oxen that is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Rhetorical question. The answer, according to Paul, is no. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? He's talking about ministers of the gospel. He says, he says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope of the thresher, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. And then here's the rub. This is what he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul is saying, when we bring the gospel to you, when we sow spiritual things among you, it is well within our rights to receive material things in return, such as having our needs met. Just our physical everyday needs met. He's telling the Corinthians and the Thessalonians that he has the right to get paid for his gospel work. Now again, this, this doesn't quite sit right with us because we live in a world where people like prosperity gospel preachers have abused things like this nonstop. Where they fly around in their private jets and they, they do all sorts of things and they say, call in and give and if you want this, then you'll get what you need. But the reality is that Paul is saying that ministers of the gospel have the right to get paid for sowing spiritual things among, among the church. Muzzling the ox would be forcing Paul to provide for his own needs. That's what he says. Muzzled ox is not nearly effective when he goes out to plow. Thinking little of the gospel as if it had no effect on, a materi on material would be muzzling the ox. But our, our, our understanding of spiritual things is that they affect all things in our lives. Not just our one hour on Sunday morning, not just our prayer time in the chair with a cup of coffee before the kids wake up, hopefully, but because what we believe affects literally everything. We said this last week, our theology comes out of our fingertips. When you prepare a, a side dish for a potluck at a members meeting after congregational worship, your theology is coming out. That's not just a, 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 a technicality in your life. It is, in fact, an act of spiritual worship. When you parent your children and when you raise them and lead them, when you honor and respect your parents, when you seek to be faithful in everyday life, you are applying the spiritual things to the material world. Our lives are not so nearly segmented as we would like them to be. We make declarations about what we believe and what we do with our hands and what we look at with our eyes and where we walk with our feet every single day. This is what Paul is saying. Paul says, I didn't come to you just to give you some, some worldview 
analysis. I came here to give you a new way to live. Is it too much that we reap material things when we sow spiritual things that affect all of your life? Paul knows that exercising the right to get paid does open the door for some to think of him as greedy and glory-seeking. So he says, we did not come to you with a pretext for greed. So even though Paul has the authority to say, I should be compensated for reaping material things among you, or reaping spiritual things among you, I should be compensated with material things, having my needs met, I'm not going to make that demand of you. He, because he recognizes that could potentially open the door for some to call him greedy and glory-seeking. Paul isn't in a contract negotiations with the Thessalonians like an NFL quarterback or a Hollywood writer. He's going to share himself and the gospel with the Thessalonians without making demands of them. This is too important. It's too important for me to build a barrier and get you hung up on the fact that I could, through my authority, demand to get paid. As a minister of the gospel, he has the right to demand this fair compensation, but for the sake of the gospel, he will not. And Paul says that he and Silas and Timothy approached the Thessalonians, and this was aimed at pleasing God and not pleasing man because of these four things— the gospel had its intended effect on the Thessalonians. It, they, they didn't. Paul and Silas and Timothy didn't water down the gospel for fear of suffering. Third, they didn't flatter the gospels, or the gospels. They didn't flatter the Thessalonians. And fourth, they didn't command financial compensation. This is how we can be sure that Paul did not approach the Thessalonians aiming to please them. Rather, he approached them aiming to please God. Brothers and sisters, many of you have been part of many other churches in your lifetime, or maybe this is the first one. But you should be aware of how your leaders, how the ministers of the gospel here, pastor, elders, approach you. It's never good for pastors and elders of a church to lead the people of the church seeking to please the people. That would be of no benefit to you. Rather, it is of utmost importance that the pastor, elders of a church, seek to please God. You should use this as the litmus test when you attend a church. Does the leadership here seek to please God and not please man? Having a pastor, an elder, who seeks to please man over please God, pleasing God will have a ministry that is of no benefit to the congregation. You might feel good. But having a pastor, elder, who seeks to please God over men will have a ministry that produces great benefits to the congregation even when it's painful. We're three-ish decades or so away from the advent of the seeker-sensitive movement, and maybe you're aware of this movement, but the seeker-sensitive movement essentially turned church into an evangelistic event exclusively. Many churches, large churches, decided that it would be a good idea to use surveys given to believers and unbelievers alike to understand what people wanted out of their church experience. What do you want when you come to church? You can see how this can be harmful because immediately that posture is a posture of pleasing men and not pleasing God. If that's the case in the church that you attend or where you find yourself, run. Many harmful changes were made. Many important things commanded by God for the congregation to do when they gathered were abandoned. Because the men in these leadership roles at these churches were seeking to please men and not God. For example, they stopped talking about sin. They made congregational worship into a form of entertainment. They sought to make people feel comfortable at the expense of confronting them with the truth. 
this movement has carried into our time. But for those who are part of a church, friends, if this is the posture of the pastor elders who lead where you find yourself attending, there will be no spiritual benefit for you. Your spiritual maturation will be short-circuited. Your sin will never be addressed and allowed to fester and grow like cancer. Your ears will be tickled, but you won't really know God or his son, Jesus Christ. The measure of a healthy church, if you're looking for one, isn't if you like the music or if you like the way the pastor dresses or if they have clean bathrooms or easy parking. But rather, as the leadership seeks to please God in their leading. The first way that the, but Paul came to the Thessalonians was uh, seeking to please God. The second way that Paul came to the Thessalonians was in gentleness, like a mother. Now, this is an interesting metaphor. Gentle, but verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own. Now, this doubles down on the idea that when Paul says that he is seeking to please God and not please man, he is not making demands or does not come to them with a pretext for greed. When he says, though, into the end of verse 6, when he says, though we could have made demands as an apostles of Christ, he says that they could have, but they didn't. Rather, he and Silas and Timothy came to the Thessalonians in gentleness like a mother. A mother doesn't make demands of her infants. And you have to remember that literally everyone who's part of the church in Thessalonica is an infant. Is a spiritual infant. They're not mature. Every one of these people is a recent convert. This is written somewhere in the area of 40 AD, a little bit after. And so Jesus had ascended to heaven not a decade earlier. The gospel is going out from Jerusalem into Judea into Samaria and now is making its ways to the end of the earth as Paul goes on his missionary journeys. As men are sent out from the epicenter of what Jesus did around the region. But a place like, a place like Thessalonica would have heard the name of Jesus for the first time. These people were spiritual infants. Their new life in Christ was brand new. And so a mother doesn't make demands of her infants. She doesn't expect her newborn to do the dishes or take out the trash or clean their room. But another mother at this stage is a nurturer. She's a caregiver. Paul says he was like a nursing mother. Paul recognized the Thessalonians in spiritual infancy. He was only there for two or three weeks, but many came to Christ. And so Paul treats them with gentleness. Paul didn't expect that the Thessalonians would be mature like a 15-year-old when they were born yesterday. A mother has the authority to demand that her 15-year-old clean his or her room, take out the trash. But even then, even then, a gentle request from a mother that is obeyed, a gentle request to her 15-year-old son to take out the trash, met with a simple yes, ma'am, would be preferred to a demand with a threat attached. Paul says that he was affectionately desirous of the Thessalonians. His authority is one that loves the Thessalonians. Not this raw power trip, but one that loves them. He felt affection for them. And it led him to what he says at the end of verse 8. Well, let's read all of verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Paul felt affection 
for the Thessalonians, and it led him to share not only the gospel with them, but his entire life. The New Testament compares pastor elders to shepherds who are modeling their ministry after the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Pastors' lives, pastor elders are to be poured out for the church, not for their own advantage or gain, but that the spiritual fruit might come to bear in the life of the church. For the elders, the pastors here at Buffalo City Church, we do not view the call as a pastor elder as a job. We do. There's vocational elements to it. But we're here not just to garner a paycheck or to to get the job done. We're here rather because we love you. Because like Paul was of the Thessalonians, are affectionately desirous of you and desire for God's good work and the fruit that he brings about through his word to come to bear in your life. We're ready not only to stand up here and to preach, but also to share our very lives with you. I speak for myself and for Mark and for Blaze and for John that this is true of us. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 3, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter, who watched Christ suffer. Peter, who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ, bearing witness to the risen Lord, exhorts pastor elders. to model their ministries after the ministry of Jesus Christ. The word pastor, elder, same role within the church, and Peter tells them to shepherd the flock. Shepherds protect and lead at all costs. Shepherds don't just get the job done, but share their very lives with the sheep. It is our desire to share with you not only the gospel, but ourselves. You've become very dear to me. Many of you in this room have become very, very dear to me. Such that I couldn't imagine myself in a place other than Jamestown, North Dakota with you. If God wills, I will stay here and I will die here. God has given the authorities here at Buffalo City, or the elders at Buffalo City Church authority. But our desire isn't for over you like someone who just is trying to get the job done and move on to the next thing, but like that of a nursing mother. In gentleness, we come to you with the word. We're prepared to walk with you through difficulty, not to please you, but to please God. And that brings us then to the final idea this morning that Paul came to the Thessalonians in encouragement and exhortation like a father. So in spiritual infancy, Paul says that he came to the Thessalonians like a gentleness of a mother, but as they mature and grow, and as children mature and grow, you know this parents, their parents require more of them. This is where the fatherly role comes into play. Parents don't expect a newborn to do the dishes, take out the trash, or clean their room. But when kids get older, parents do expect these things. But Paul says that the approach matters. It matters. The way that parents approach their children matters. Paul says that as the Thessalonians grew, he exhorted them. He encouraged them and charged them. We don't use the word exhort. It just means to urge. He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. He didn't come to them with demands for financial compensation. He didn't come to them in greed. He, didn't come, he did not come to them in domineering ways. 
Rather, they came to them gently in their spiritual infancy. And as they mature and as they grow, Paul begins to expect more of them. And so he charges them, he encourages them, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul says that he labored and toiled, working night and day, as not to be a burden to the Thessalonians. Fathers should not be a burden to their children. They should provide what their children's children need, both physically, spiritually, in every way, shape, or form. Fathers are designed to provide for the needs of their families. They should create an environment where growing and maturing can happen in a happy and healthy way. Fathers should aspire to be holy and righteous and blameless, like Paul and Silas and Timothy were. You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Fathers in this room, you are designed to pursue holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness as examples to your children. The spiritual leadership of the church, the pastor elders of your church, are designed to be examples of holiness and righteousness and blamelessness in our conduct towards you. And like Paul, the elders again of Buffalo City Church should not be a burden to you, but examples of holiness and righteousness, exhorting, encouraging. We model our ministry after the ministry of the Good Shepherd. It was the Pharisees who tied up burdens and laid them upon the people, but Jesus' burdens are, are light. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are here to give you rest. We labor and toil. We pray for you. We spend time thinking about you, desiring for you to come to more and deeper relationship with Jesus Christ and to see the fruit of the Christian life come to bear in your life. Not to be burdens to you. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, like Paul does here to the Thessalonians, to grow in godly maturity. We've set a Bible reading plan before you. I urge you to participate. You got an email with Bible reading check-ins, time scheduled, and hopefully more on the way. I urge you to participate. We have a handful of Bible study options. I urge you to participate. There are community groups that meet most nights of the week now. I urge you to participate. I'm not here to clutter your schedule. My urging you to participate isn't to clutter your schedule. But we want to use opportunities to encourage you and urge you to grow in godly maturity. One of the biggest concerns that I have as pastor elder is to look at the world around us, the Christian, the, the people who call themselves Christians in our society, and see that 20 and 30 and 40 years after their conversion, they're still in spiritual infancy. And one of the questions that you can ask yourself, and to know, like maybe I've been a Christian for 20 years, but ask yourself, am I still a spiritual infant? How can you know? One of the ways that you know is when your pastors and elders gently urge you and encourage you to grow in godly maturity, you resist. You say, I'm too busy, I'd like to do something else, or leave me alone, I'm already mature. Again, this is not a call to do things or to clutter up your schedule, but put yourself in a position to grow. That's why we exist. We approach you gently, like mothers exhorting you and encouraging you like fathers. Make use of us as those who labor and toil on your behalf. Make use of us. If you have no desire to grow in godly maturity, but rather remain in your infancy, the pastor elders here will remain gentle with you. That's our call. 
But friends, there is something more for you in this life. Like Paul and like fathers, we charge you in a, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Do not live as an infant, content with the kingdom of this world. But like Paul says right at the end of verse 12, it is God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's not me. It's not the pastor elders. It's God who calls you into, the own, into his own kingdom and glory. In conclusion, a few things this morning, just implications from this text that I want to highlight for you. We've covered these, but again, I want to say them and make sure that we walk away with the same understanding. The first concluding point this morning is that effective gospel ministers boldly proclaim the gospel and do not shy away when shame and suffering are potential results. This is the marker of effectiveness, according to Paul. When the pastor elders are not deterred from gospel proclamation, sometimes the church is led to believe the number of people that attend on a Sunday or the number of programs that they have or the reputation they have in the community are the markers of effective gospel ministry. But Paul mentions none of that as effective gospel ministry here. But, rather, he says that effective gospel ministry declares the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul says at the beginning of this passage that there was no impurity and there was no deception in their gospel proclamation. But they, by declaring the whole truth, not trying to brush it up to make it easier to digest, they set out to please God and not to please man. Brothers and sisters, may this be true of the elders here as well. There may be things that you don't like about Buffalo City Church. Maybe you don't like the music very much or you don't like the aesthetic and I know the preaching is hit or miss. But the one thing you absolutely must not tolerate is church leadership that doctors up the gospel to make it easier for you to digest. No matter the cost, the gospel message must remain pure, protected by the pastor elders as they rely on God. That's the first implication this morning. Second one, gospel ministers have spiritual authority within the church. This is implied. Paul says in verse 6 that he could have made demands as an apostle of Christ. Now, pastor elders are not apostles. These are two separate things. But elsewhere in the New Testament, the same authority in the church is given to pastor elders serving a specific church. Paul tells Timothy that his role as an elder includes commanding and teaching. These tasks require God-given authority. The author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for, what would, for that would be of no advantage to you. Paul knows this kind of authority comes with the ability to command, but that would not be the best use of the authority given to him. Paul writes to Philemon, Desiring that Philemon receives back his runaway slave Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother, he writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. The credibility of authority of the pastor elder is seen not in getting, to do people, or getting people to do what they want, but the love that they model for the flock entrusted to them by the Good Shepherd. Third implication. Gospel ministers are to be gentle with spiritual infants and encouragements to those who are maturing. Again, parents are not to be burdens to their children. Paul did not come as a burden to the Thessalonians. The pastor elders at Buffalo City Church should not be a burden to you. We, through gentleness and encouragement, want you to see you grow and mature in Christ. We labor and we toil among you. We make sacrifices and we do it so that our gospel proclamation will not be hindered. We live in a society that works hard. Friends, may it be true of the pastor elders here at Buffalo City Church that we work hard as well. Laboring, toiling, our head down for the work of the gospel in and among you. 
Many Christians have been part of a church where spiritual leadership is a burden to them. They tie up heavy burdens and they lay it right upon the people, making demands of them that people simply cannot live up to. One of the worst things you can do as a parent is demand that your four-year-old be mature like an eight-year-old or a 15-year-old. Or your 18-year-old be like a 30-year-old. You cannot parent your four-year-old like an 18-year-old. And our society thinks that 18-year-olds should know what they're doing for the rest of their lives, but that comes more like 30 or 35. Pastor elders must be in tune with the maturity of their congregation, calling them to pursue maturity, but calling them to do so where they are, not where the leadership wants them to be. This is the way that all the leadership development stuff gets pushed Talk to them where you want them to be, not where they are. That's not what Paul does. And that's not what we'll do either. Of course, pastor elders aren't perfect people. You know that to be true. You've seen me do dumb stuff. We live our lives together. I've had to repent, but ask for your forgiveness on many occasions. My hope isn't in standing up here and being a perfect example for you. My hope is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. I've made mistakes. I've hurt you. But we strive to be examples of holiness and righteousness and lead in gentleness and encouragement. Us getting it wrong is no excuse to stop seeking to grow in godly maturity. And we will get it wrong. Trust Jesus. Not us. Final implication. All of this assumes that Christian that the Christian is actively connected to a local church and church membership. There's no New Testament category for a churchless Christian. If you're floating from church to church, I urge you, I exhort you, find a church home. If it's here, great. If it's somewhere else, great. Find a place where you can connect, where you can plug in, where you can attend every week, where you can center the proclamation of God's word, where you can worship together with the body, where you can be united together in Christ by faith. Don't, don't float. Don't float. One of the reasons we believe that church membership matters is because we're designed to be under the spiritual parentage of the pastor elders of a local church. And being disconnected from a body, being a floater who just pops in and pops out wherever you want, whenever you feel like it, means that you doesn't mean that you're not under authority. It just means that you're under authority that isn't commanded by God to be gentle and encouraging to you. The pastor elders take our marching orders from God's word. If you're floating, your authority is taking marching orders from God knows what. And so I want to invite you, if you're here this morning and you desire to be connected to this church to pursue church membership, it's a simple process. It's just a document to read in an interview with one of the elders. That's very simple. Be connected to a local church, though. Don't continue to float. If you're like, what does that even mean? Church membership is designed for Christians. We gather together on Sundays to worship a God who has sent his son into the world to die for the sins that we've committed, the sins that we were born into and the sins that we continue to to live in. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the call to you this morning is to come to him, to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ, trusting him for forgiveness of your sin so that you might inherit eternal life. These things come to us this morning through the word of God. We as God's people are designed, we as God's people are designed to live in a faith community being actively committed to one another, loving one another, thereby loving God. I urge you, become connected to a local body. So again, the three implications or four implications this morning, 
Effective gospel ministers boldly proclaim the gospel and do not shy away when shame and suffering are potential results. Gospel ministers have spiritual authority within the church. Gospel ministers are desired to be gentile, gentle with spiritual infants and encouragements to those who are maturing. And all of this assumes that Christians are actively connected to the local church when they are united to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you for the clarity on this. Would you now in this time transform us? Would the preaching of the word be effective in our hearts and our minds to bring about fruit? God, it is our desire this morning that we would not be left the same as we were when we walked into this building, but that through the power of the Holy Spirit we'd be transformed. God, would you make us like Jesus Christ? God, would our minds be renewed? As we sing now, as church members head to the potluck, God, would we desire again to be united together by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.